The Second City's 50th anniversary celebration in December of 2009 was a seminal moment in the history of the theater. Alums from 1959 on gathered in Chicago for a celebration of a half century of satire. Cast members from the 60s mingled with the current cast. Old wounds were healed and new friendships were forged, including the one that actually led to this podcast. It also was an opportunity for the entertainment industry at large to become reacquainted with the talent factory on Wells Street and all of its performers. This is not to say that Hollywood had lost touch with the Second City, but it's hard to describe how overwhelming the amount of funny people in that building were for that event. Really, it was not so. Alumni who hadn't been back to the theater in years were introduced to a new generation of performers keeping the flame lit. More importantly, agents and managers from the coast were introduced to a roster of young, unrepresented talent that they could get their mitts on. Tim Robinson, Sam Richardson, Mike O'Brien, A.D. Bryant, Mary Sohn are just a few of the recent names who made their way to high-profile TV shows following their time at Second City. Our guest today, Tim Baltz, is yet another of this talented generation. Whether flashing his oddball hilarity as a tech giant in Veep or displaying his versatility playing dozens of characters on Drunk History, Tim is clearly a burgeoning force in the future of comedy. And yet, I know he's not letting this newfound celebrity go to his head. How do I know this? Because although Tim is currently shooting Righteous Gemstones across the country, he went out of his way to make this interview happen on the one day he's in L.A. getting a fitting for some other show that he's in soon. It's a level of improv nerdiness that I hope never abandons him, especially for the next hour, as that would be particularly horrible timing. Now, speaking of timing, this is a great time to welcome the hilarious Tim Baltz to the show. Welcome, Tim. Oh, thanks. That's nice. And I, you're right. I hope I never lose that. I, I hope so, too. <laughs> but again, other people probably wouldn't complain if everyone lost the improv nerdiness in the improv world. <laughs> but uh, for us improv nerds, uh, no offense, Jimmy Corain, uh, I'm, not, I'm not trying to hone in on your podcast. Yeah, you got to edit that plug out of here. No, no, that's fine. That's fine. We're different. And anyone who knows us will know that's different. But this is about you and not me or Jimmy. You, Tim, uh, are the first person I've had. Now, I know you from Chicago and everything, but you are the first post-me person at Second City that I've had on the show. And so, in some ways, I know less about your experience than anyone else's because I didn't see... Well, I did see your shows, but again, I saw them after. I saw them as an alum, which is a different way than seeing them, you know, beforehand. Although, I was equally high for all the shows I saw before (laughs) or after, it, oh. re- it really is different, though, when you go back and you see a show. You, like the, the, the Oz curtain has been lifted, and there are certain things that you find yourself um, just, like, shutting off during, and other things where you're like, oh, that's really brave, or oh, that's really crisp. Yep, you know too much about it for some things. Yeah. And then there are some things, again, when you are surprised, it's, it's always pleasantly. I think it's always pleasantly, or usually pleasantly. There's been some alums who have expressed displeasure in shows in the past, but we'll, I think because of those lessons that happened in a show I was in, alums from that point on stopped doing that uh-huh. uh, and just kept their mouth shut, uh, which is probably always the better idea. But I know that you grew up in the Chicago area, correct? And this is kind of, has always been, and I, I'm sorry to anyone who gets sick of the sports analogies, but in the, in the same way that a recruiting football team, if you have a lot of good talent in that area, it always helps. In the second city while people move from all over the country to take classes and perform there, they've always depended on, it is a Chicago theater at its heart, and they've always depended on kind of that homegrown talent who went to shows as a kid or teenager 
knew the second city world wanted to do it and, and, and then ended up doing it. Uh, guys like Brad Morris, the Murray brothers, you and many, many others, but those are just some names that come off the top of my head. Yeah. I grew up in Joliet, which is past the suburbs, about 90 minutes Southwest. And I think, uh, one of my, some, one of my best friends growing up, his stepbrother, Dan Telfer, who you probably remember, uh, he was on an IO team. So when I was 14, maybe 15, we went up to see him and his Herald team at IO. Okay. And Bucket was the the big team that was closing the night. Sure. And Dassey was sitting in with Bucket. Okay, Bob Dassey, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, I mean, TJ was in it, Greg Mills was in it, Jen Bills. Um, I don't think... McBrayer was in it that night, but but who knows? Sure, and and just yeah, just again, uh, Io. We always mention Bucket is, and teams often get put together, and they're a team for a long time, and then sometimes there's a bunch of people who are good performers who are on other teams that don't exist anymore, and they'll just get thrown together onto a team. And this was kind of like an all starish team that doesn't rehearse but still does good shows. Yeah, and that's what this was. And you went and saw that show. Went and saw that, and that just blew my mind because mm. it, it uh, I, Io and get into that later but io i think was really kind of a special mix of uh a lot of old school principles of improvisation uh before improv became commodified i think io really struggled after the commodification of improv sure because there wasn't this tangible um new world like uh guarantees about what this curriculum will do for you in a professional or career sense. Sure. Well, this is all me talking. Yeah, yeah. But at the time, it blew my mind. There were all these really smart, funny people that were doing something together, and I, I knew immediately. I like, I have to try to do this. Sure. And then I ended up uh, at Loyola for college, and up on the north side. Yeah, in Rogers Park, and I still, I didn't take classes at I.O. I took beginning classes at Second City in college. Because I wanted to succeed at, at I.O. so badly that I, I was like, I can't. You didn't want to ruin it. I don't want to take classes until I'm ready. That I think I, I've gotten the kind of, I burned off that nervous energy. Yeah. Uh, which I, I don't think that I was aware of at the time. I think I just. Uh, so you saw a show before college? Before college, many shows. Okay. We would go up over Christmas break. Um, I was the dreamer many times. Okay. Uh, in the the dream and between Herald teams, and just to uh, to acquaint everyone with that, this is an ancient improv game that kind of was a a forebearer to the long form improvisation that Tim and I ended up doing a lot of. Uh, and when I started, it was something they would do in between two teams, and you bring somebody up and you ask them questions about their day, and then the you know, based on the theories of Freud, the things that happen to you during your day. Vi- revisit you in your dreams at night. And so based on that, we'll show you what Tim's dream tonight might be like or nightmare. And then people would come in and do all these things based on the information he'd given. And, and, and that, that was a, a mainstay in the show and kind of, you know, now you take one suggestion and go, Yeah. but this would give you a whole bunch of information you could then use. And that's how improv is kind of, um, evolved where, and I was talking before we went on air to our producer about how sets used to be at Second City, where they would come out and get a whole boatload of suggestions, write them down on a piece of paper, go backstage, talk it over for a few minutes, not script it per se, but block it out a little bit, and then come out and bring out four, five, six scenes that off of each suggestion. Whereas in later years, probably starting in the 90s, you might just for an improv set come out and say, give us one word. And then you do a half hour of improv kind of inspired by that. And you might pick a form 
to give you some kind of structure. You know? Exactly. It might be a weird ass. Whatever, be, right, right. Or a dream, yeah. uh, so to speak. Now, so did you go to Second City shows before college? I think my aunt for my 18th birthday got my cousin and I tickets to a touring show in Aurora, which is funny because it's so close to Chicago. Absolutely. <laughs> it's, is that like in between Joliet and, uh, and Chicago it's, or yeah, to the West? It's closer to Joliet. I think it's to the West. Weirdly, my geography, my world geography is great. My Chicagoland area geography, someone's like, where's Berwyn? I'm like, I have no idea. Right. The North suburbs and South suburbs are the same to I me. No, yeah. I know I know the Browns chicken murder happened in Palatine. I can't tell you where Palatine well, is. Well, sure. We all know Mer- Murders are a great way to remember where things happen, obviously. Uh, so, and again, I think for the younger crowd, you know, for 18, 19, 20-year-olds at that time, Second City may not have been the main, because the tickets were a little more prohibitive, not as prohibitive as they are now. But, uh, yeah, it was you know, and, and it wasn't quite the thing for 18, 19-year-olds. But IO inevitably, whether you're taking classes there or watching shows there, will lead you to Second City at that time in that city. Definitely. It's odd that I was experiencing IO as a kid right around the time that Second City was kind of, uh, it had become clear that their ranks had been infiltrated by IO style. Yes. And, and, and right. And then the stage shows, you know, from the mid nineties through the, the early two thousands had, had adopted this kind of, Herald-like callback structure that yes. changed what Second City reviews. Absolutely, and in, in this, like. yep, in the same. Yes, there were these seminal changes, and that was a big one, I think. And and maybe we are at another one right now. Actually, the building, you know, the the company was sold, so we'll see well, how that. Yeah, who knows what that works happen. out? But and that was kind of you know you and I probably came in within six eight years of each other or whatever like that. And that's what yeah the '90s and early 2000s were was the incredible impact of long form improv and Del Close who had worked at Second City and then fired, quit, who knows, probably all those things happened to him at various times, went on and started this thing. So ironically, by leaving Second City, Dell ended up influencing it far more than he may have had he stayed there directing the shows because he wouldn't add the time to experiment with all the, you know, in those early years, you weren't making money off of improv. Right. Even now it's hard to, and we'll get into that a little later, but but when it was not as good as it is now, because not as many people were doing it, you know, baseball players in 1860 were not as good as b- baseball players now. Yeah. Uh, so. But those numbers. Oh, Ooh. my God. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of triples. A lot more triples then. Because there were no fences. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but again, uh, you know, it gave him the time to work on that. And then that art form infiltrated what he had already been doing at Second City. And here we are with all that. So, so now you're in college at Loyola, you're doing your shows, let's go past college, uh, you've gone to I.O., this is probably what, around 2000? I started I.O. Uh, right after I graduated in 03. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're younger than I thought even. So, uh, <laughs> so but, that, but you think that because I was around for, I legitimately just lurked and watch shows at I.O. for seven years before sure. I started taking classes. Yeah, absolutely. So the difference in a, in a frequent audience member and a infrequent performer was very thin. It, the yeah. line there is very thin. It's yeah. like, oh, that's the guy who's at the bar. He looks like he's about 20. That's everybody. So, well, I looked like I was about 13 at Yes, the time. probably you did. Uh, and actually, you know, it, that's right around the time they probably stopped serving 13-year-olds at I.O. <laughs> I did have a fake ID. Did you? With my real name on it, like an idiot. <laughs> 
I'm sorry to my fake, mom. No, fake she, ID with your real name. How did you do that? Uh, there was a guy freshman year at Loyola who made, who printed fake IDs, and he printed New York State ones because they were the easiest ones to make. <laughs> they were flimsy. Yep. And uh, they worked like a charm. Sure. They were so easy. And, you know, I had other pieces of ID in my wallet, so I was like, oh, yeah, well, if, in case anyone's like, this isn't you, I, I like, put my real name on Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Absolutely. The guy oh. asked, what, what name do you want on it? And I was like, I thought he meant, how do you spell your name? Because right. sure. my first name is spelled with two E's and not a Y. So I was like, uh, oh, yeah, so here's, my, here's the name you put on it. He's like, oh, okay, funky spelling, you know. I'm like, oh, all right. So you asked, right. <laughs> and then I get it. And I, in my hometown, I would go to places, and I'd give them, you know, before I turned 21, and sure. I'd give them this idea. And, like, someone at a gas station who knows my entire family it's is like, like, dude, yeah. Dude, you graduated high school a year ago. What do you get the hell out of here? I mean, there is some wisdom to that. I think if you had ever been caught, it would have been like a federal crime of greater magnitude because your own name is on it, probably. Yeah. But who, who knows? We didn't have to cross that but bridge. It worked at I.O. Of course. And I legit looked like a 14-year-old. Absolutely. Guys. Absolutely. That didn't stop anybody from getting served there. But, again, this, uh, you know... And you were there for a few years performing, uh, but probably only a couple of years by the time you got into a touring company. Yeah, so I, I, I was then on, I'd gone through the I.O. system and had been on a team for probably six months before I started conservatory classes. And a lot of the That's people you were on teams with, you ended up again touring with, I think, because it's kind of like your crew there. Yeah. A lot of those people ended up. Which makes sense at that time being called up into the touring companies. And so you, you played with a lot of people you were familiar with. Or at least they were on other touring companies because sure. it was so IO dominated. Absolutely. the whole And again, that's how it was. And other theaters, again, present themselves at various points in the Second City's history. But we're talking in the 90s, 2000s here. So, yes, all of those people were spread throughout. And you were in Redco. We kind of ba- went back and forth a little bit of that, right? Yeah. As I understudied for about... Uh, three or four months and did a couple blue co shows, a green co show, and then I was in for Ryan Archibald and Red Co for three months. And we yeah. were doing an Arlington Heights run. Mm-hmm. And then he came off a boat and was like, I don't want to do this show. I'm done touring. And Dina Fackless was our director and she went and she was like, Can we keep Tim? Sure. And so I, I think I, you know, I started touring a little earlier than normal. And the only reason I got hired as an understudy is because a couple of people flamed out on boats, flaked out. Did you, you know, go onto a boat or? I never did a boat. Oh, so a couple of understudies went on boats and flaked out? Yeah, I don't even remember who they are, but I remember at the time a couple male understudies got fired. Yeah. And that opened the door for Seth and I to get hired. Okay. And and so at this time, the Second City had signed an agreement with Norwegian, Dawn, uh, with Norwegian Cruise Lines uh, a couple of years probably prior to that. It was, because I did the first ship that they did, the Norwegian Dawn. It was yeah. the first Second City cruise ship that they did. Oh, five? Yeah. Yeah. No, yes. I think it was 05. And I've told the story before, but, you know, I said, we should get a bonus for doing such a great show. And the producer said, eh, if we have a couple extra boats, maybe we'll throw you a bonus. Right after we did our first show, Norwegian added five boats to the thing. No bonus. Anyway. <laughs> uh, no bonus. But the again, at this time, <laughs> so, but what this did was a lot of people, more improvisers than ever before in this time suddenly had paying gigs yeah because they were hiring about 30 people now so that's 30 more jobs and people who normally would be in a touring company perhaps or or even on a resident company are taking these at the time very well-paying jobs better paying than the main stage actually yeah so but with that they were spreading their talent a little thin and so yeah some mistakes are made people drop out and you get in and also you know quality wise People want to get paid, so they start to tailor their performances, even subconsciously, 
to the thing that's going to pay them. Yes. Right. That's what the commodification of improv has done. Second City played its part in that. Sure. You know, L.A. theaters played their part in that for sure. New York. Um, but you you would start to see people that had boat energy. <laughs> OK. What they, is what they called it. Sure. Uh, or if you go, if you were a fine performer and then you do too many ships and you come back. Uh, from the ship, yeah, uh, you have boat energy. And and it's like you're playing, you're playing to like eighty year old New Jersey tourists right now. <laughs> there's something that they uh, describe in Amsterdam, and I, I am not even going to try, but it's like hecka becka pakapo, which means like wacky doodle face or something like that. God bless the Dutch. <laughs> yeah, right. But that is like that. That's something that they would say. Like if you go out to Boom Chicago for too long, you get hecka becka wecka face or whatever, and it's the same thing. You're playing. Playing you're, playing, you're playing bigger. All I did was Pratt Falls the year I was in Amsterdam. That's all I did. And so, yes, it was pretty big. You get older and you can't do those as much. Hey, people pay good money to watch Joe Canale fall down. That's true. People have paid to watch me get hit in the nuts, too. But uh, as it gets older, it gets more difficult to do that. Uh, so I know we're wandering all around uh, different things and crazy face and everything. But, yes, you do, when you play to a tourist crowd, you start doing more touristy things. Again, when you go out to a tourist crowd, when tourists come to Second City, you serve them shit on a plate, they're still going to laugh at it because they're in your house and everything. Yeah. But, you know, touring does this a little bit, but the ship did it, I don't want to say sold out. When you say commodification, it's like dumbing down. There's just... Well, it just means that the path to getting, the, the path to getting paid leads to qualitative decisions that alter how you're learning the craft right. and how you're practicing the craft and what your goals and objectives are. That's all. If we're talking about a Chicago style of comedy that was, that was, you know, raised in Viola Spolin, like theater games, there is a qualitative objective to that that is based in team building, awareness, listening. Like these are not things that you get paid for. No, right. But they are crucial things that make you a great team member that led to Second City people being, uh, you know, crucial aspects of SNL casts, right? Yes. Combined with uh, National Lampoon people or Harvard people. Like those are great qualities. Yes. And I continue to work because of those qualities, not because I look and I'm like, how does Hollywood see me? You well, know, I know yeah. how Hollywood sees me right now. I'm like a, a weird nerd they haven't figured out yet. But that's fine. That's Once, you know, I get paid for that. I don't care how absolutely. I get paid. But I do know that the skills underneath that are crucial to helping me uh, maintain like a flexibility in how I get hired. That's how you keep working. That's how you keep working. And those skills get eroded by what some people might call selling out. But really, it's it's not being aware of what certain types of commodified improv teachings are doing to you and how they're applicable in what situation for example if you oh, Try, i'm trying so hard no, I not think to I talk have, shit i think I, broad no i i, I think i have an idea like one way that you might put it is and i've said this before you know chicago improvisers are snobs you know why it was invented and perfected there that's why um it, it the, americans are snobs about american football you know why have you seen a team from, like, Spain play, like, the Jets even? No. So, so again, there's a reason for that. But, but you might say from an improviser, from a Chicago improviser's point of view, if you learn only how to do a character monologue, that might get you hired on SNL to do the character. But if you don't have anything behind that character other than that one-minute monologue, you're not going to last very long at SNL. And you're saying the skills 
you might develop a great character while doing, you know, the regular improv rules. But if all you do is I just need to get this one minute out without any of the process that normally goes behind that, it's going to be a very watered down and, and shallow performance. And I would argue that now more than ever, that's less relevant. And I, it's not that I'm disagreeing with you. It's that no, no, go ahead. Marketing and packaging has filled in the gaps of all these things. So if someone has a vested interest in making someone pop, yeah. making someone go off and making money off of them, they don't need those underlying skills at all. If a network, a group of producers, a studio says, we're going to make this person work. Yeah. Packaging, again, I'm trying so hard, but there, there is like... How does this pertain to the second city? Or... Uh, uh, now, like, like, because I want to get into when we talk about your shows, and and in the intro, I talked about the 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 anniversary show. So we may get this, to this in a few mi- uh, in a few minutes. Yeah. But again, it was a transformational time for the theater and the performers at the theater from before then. Yeah. To after, because of the light that had been shined on the second city, and so the average amount of time, I did four shows, probably. I could have done a fifth show. There's this element where you don't want to do one show too many. Yeah. Of course, that would have been the 50th anniversary show that I did. Probably wouldn't have hurt the career. But uh, my, I've never been known for, you know, always for impeccable timing, not necessarily impeccably good timing. But your last show was America All Better, right? Yes. That was a great show. It was a great show. That's a top it, it was, five, it was a great show. show. It was better than the, anniversary, uh, the 50th anniversary show. There's no problem in me saying that. And, <laughs> and it just was. It was a, that, so that was my, my gap year in between touring and stages. Right, where you so, probably watch a show a bunch. I, well, I understudied. I went in for you and for, for Mike O'Brien, so... Okay, so let's let's we'll, we'll get into this because uh, I you know we could talk theoretical commodification of improv for a long time, but I'm not sure everyone wants to hear hours yeah, of it. it. It doesn't, and honestly, it's it's still obtuse enough that most people are going to yes. glaze over when they. It's hear probably what I'm yes, about. even amongst improv fans, it's yeah. an inside conversation for you and I. Though maybe later in the parking lot, we'll keep keep it going. Sure. Uh, so again, I want to talk get ba- getting back into your touring. You toured with a bunch of names of, uh, that I mentioned before. Uh, also, Hans Holson, who now lives in Amsterdam, but uh, is in all those uh, commercials with Bill Glass oh, for progressive. progressive. Yeah, God, those are funny. One of those guys growing up to be like his parents. And Brendan Jennings, uh, you toured with Shelley Gossman, uh, who's you know writer on SNL and producing shows out here. P.O.B., Tim Robinson, those were the people you toured with. Yeah. And then you got high. Uh, and let me talk just a little bit because you and I touched on this. You were in Redco, and you and I did a little shit talking about touring companies. And so when I was there, and, and it's truly, there's not like real rivalry. Yeah. But you mentioned that, you know, Redco at the time was, and there are these, the, there's perceptions. In my time, Blueco was the best, but Redco got all the money gigs because they, they, they didn't cause trouble whatever you might want to justify it as. And so that was the reputation we had. Now, I don't know what Redco thought about us necessarily. We were, they probably thought we were uh, really like loud, obnoxious, and just going mighty, mighty blue co all the time. It was very <laughs> lame. So I get that. And you were saying, you know, you were saying, oh man, Redco was the shit when I was there. Well, we had the least turnover and okay. that stability allowed us to weather all the storms of the building. Cause I started touring in 2006 and ended at the, the end of 2008, basically. And we were getting less and less money gigs. So, uh, and the other touring companies, because of the boats, 
which paid more, people would bail on touring to go do a boat. So that meant that there was a lot of turnover. And anytime there's turnover, it takes you like five, six months to learn any new job. And when you're on the road and you have less gigs, it was a little more takes even longer. It takes sure. longer. And then it depends like if you're breaking in a new director and our directors were really seasoned. But we really had the same core cast, say for a couple people going out for like two, two and a half years. And we just had we were very much no drama and for whatever reason. That's why you lasted as, you know, if there was more drama, there, there probably would have been more turnover. That's what happened with Blue and Green at, at the time. Right. And again, this is this is great that you mentioned this now, because as we're going to talk about the shows you did and the time that you did the shows, it was transforming where people would sometimes just do one show on the main stage and be gone. And that was very rare. Like a guy like Odenkirk might do that, but he came from SNL to Second City. So yeah. that's an odd thing to begin with. But, you know, in the, you know, Dorf, Kevin Dorf did six shows. He probably would have done shows as long as they let him. I might have as well under different circumstances, and many people might have, but eventually got to go. But the, those shows, the runs of those shows were shorter too, right? Often they were until the Barack show, which went 364 days or something, because then they would have had to pay us again if we went over a year, blah, 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 blah. So, yes, when the shows got popular, they would run them longer. And when they had to pay the performers to write the shows, they would stretch out the run of the show longer because if you're doing a show every three months and you're paying your performers three grand each to write it, even though you're still making on money on that, that's another, not as much parking lot conversation is the union negotiations. That's another thing that we, for another, I try to avoid that every time I do these episodes because I could just go down that hole. (laughs) So we get to the ETC and at the time you're, uh, you're hired. Oh, uh, uh, any shit talk you want about Turco, go ahead and throw that in. But no. well, the turnover thing, I think, is a really good point. I, th- and, and for the casts as well, not just the touring company. There really, there really wasn't drama. I, I think, you know, if anything, no, I, we, we were proud of what we did. We put together really good shows. I think our Arlington Heights touring show ranks up there with the stage shows that I did. It was that good. Shelly and Hans leading the way. Hans is one of the funniest people of all time. Yeah, Hans uh, Holson, of, of very funny time. guy. Yeah, I he, would put Hans against like people that have had 40-year comedy careers. Well, and because Hans also and I, I and this, you know, Hans is unique. And we're all unique. But there is a certain kind of sarcastic wise-ass white guy that many of us fit the profile of with whatever way you want to go off of that kind of main template. You know, I'm the I'm the angrier, constantly punching version of that. And there are, you know, other versions. Hans is not quantifiable, not diagnosable. He's just unique in that way. He looks unique and then his his comedy is unique. So you're right. He he is hilarious and in a way that most of us wouldn't even think of. He's a, he's one of the best musical improvisers. Sure. Ever. Sure. Which is, you know, and again, when you're great at it, it's a Amazing skill. I often say that sometimes you can get over over rewarded for a dinky 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 dink song that you rhyme. <laughs> That's pretty good. But like when you have people, Ross Bryant's another one who's an amazing, oh, yeah, uh, like yeah. rapper and singer. When yeah. you see the great ones do it, actually, uh, the guy who wrote Hamilton, Lin Manuel Miranda, he was he's in an improv singing group. Yeah, Freestyle Supreme. Or yes, Freestyle Love Supreme. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. That, that is a skill that is, again, a particular skill that is kind of unique to a, a s- small group of people. Not in my skill set. No, nor, nor mine. Nor Ike Barinholtz. I only mention this because he still tries all the time to do that when well, he improvises. Well, it's, it, but it's important, to, it's important to work at the stuff that you suck at. <laughs> and 
it's a lesson in commitment. You know what I would do when we were on the road, you know, the person who picks what the improv set is, I would, when it was mine, I would always pick a musical because I was so bad at them. I never wanted to do it in Chicago, but on the road, I'm like, these people in Sioux Falls, South Dakota don't care. (laughs) And they haven't seen baby wants candy. So whatever you do is going to be a certain high level that they can't compare to anything. I was so bad. I want to talk about Arlington Heights though, and that you wrote a show there. We wrote a show there uh, when I was touring. Actually, a couple of members, Jenny Hagel and Matt Craig, did the writing. And it was, for the, it was for the Breeders' Cup, which was coming to Arlington Heights. So that was a tailored show a little bit. But just years before I had done that, and a few more years before you had done that, Arlington Heights was its own second city space, where Steve Carell and Amy Sedaris and... Nancy Walls, Dave Keckner, All kinds of very talented people were writing, because they had so much talent then... And it's not that they didn't have that much talent in Chicago in our time. It's just that people in Arlington Heights were just driving into Chicago to see the shows. And so Arlington Heights would be like a tour co month run or something. Yeah. But they abandoned kind of that idea of a, of a permanent space in the suburbs, maybe to the detriment. Cause some of the shows that were written there were great shows as well. And it's like nobody really in the second city world knows any of those tour co shows in in Arlington Heights, but they do know the company shows. Do you know what I mean? Like it, it yeah. it's almost like it lost its allure. And so none of the scenes that you perhaps wrote for that show are in the archives. Or no one knows about them. I, I was young. I think I only got one scene into that. But Hans and Shelley and Dana, oh man, they got so many good things into that. I mean, but the, you know, stuff like that and even um even, you know, the Detroit space, the Cleveland space, the Denver space, they at a certain point, they don't become economically viable for someone who's trying to make a profit. Yeah, you could easily run those theaters and break even. Yeah, and be a a public good. Yeah, theater yeah. is a public good. And and a training center, they've proven. I think that model can sustain you more than the performances can. But but yeah, I think it's just too much of a headache for them to want to do that and not and not have enough, not clear enough money. Yes. every month. And and this is where we get into the 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 yeah. debate between art and commerce that will exist forever as long as those two things are are in the world. Uh, and you know I don't want to talk about why all the the theaters didn't make it, but that's probably it. Is that it was just more work than what it was paying off for. And from a business point of view, you know, very few businesses are in the public good uh, business, unfortunately. Uh, so you're at, you you are. Now you've worked with all these people in the touring companies, and now you you do, do your first show on the ETC, which uh, again is the it's a stand for Experimental Theater Company, I believe, is what it started out with. Yeah, and f- I think for the most part, you know, again in phases, sometimes the company is doing more experimental some stuff, and sometimes it's just kind of echoing what's going on, and it's a more traditional sketch show. What did you think about the first show that you did? Uh, which was titled "Absolute Best Friggin' Time of Your Life." Yeah, Second City titles always make yes. me laugh. Cause yes, they, uh, but yeah, it, it was great. You know, the, your first show, you're always a little uh, disoriented. Um, I I had probably like the most stuff cut from that show that didn't make the show, which is natural. Also, for your first time, that was a heck of a ride. I really liked the structure. I got to work on the structure of that show a mm-hmm. lot. Um, and it was a satisfying experience for the audience. I think like the hit ratio of that show uh, was really high in terms of 
you get a bad audience, but you get them rolling and, you know, everyone's laughing throughout the show. It, it was really fun. And there's some great improv with the, with the audience. Um, it ran, it, it also almost ran for a year. Yeah. So, and the, the cast turned over about halfway through. So we had three understudies in for about half of the run. Okay, now that that's that. Let's get into that. That changes the dynamic of the show sometimes for the better, and then other times you're like, "Well, this scene just is never going to work the same way again," and it comes at a crucial point in the show, and that means Act Two is always going to suffer a little bit. Yeah, and now for the most part, Second City scenes, as opposed to perhaps like a, if you've ever seen a Groundlings show, Groundlings sketches are so personal to the creator, often that it's a character that they've got in their, you know, back pocket that they can just pull out and it's hard to recreate that kind of thing. And they run for 2 months, which is exactly heavenly. Whereas whereas a second city scene, you, you the hope is at least any any you know, viable performer could be plugged in, know the lines and the script is going to carry it through. But but occasionally Keegan Michael Key is a guy that comes to mind to me who no matter who you put in he was so dynamic and unusual. Like if Hans had been on a stage, it would be hard to understudy him too. Yeah. So yes, you do have times where the performer has some element, whether they're a great rapper or whatever it is that is so unique that the scene or the part really depends on that. And while every show transforms through its run, when you add three understudies into it, I wonder what that does. You tell me. Well, they had to... They had to tinker and find the right understudies. It ended up being fine, and we found new things, and the show was the show was really successful, and they didn't turn it over for that reason because we ended up finding the new understudies, which I think were Jessica Joy, who who got who added to the next ETC show, Tim Ryder, and, boy, who else? Mike Lair? Did he come in? Or 80? Forgetting. Well, there's another thing that I want to... Yeah, maybe Nicole Thurman, um, who ended up working with on The Opposition uh, yes. and had a great time with. I, I don't think she ever got a stage, but... And that is something that is, you know, you didn't understudy. So at some point, I'll talk a little more with somebody who maybe went through this. But there is a, and I experienced this, where oftentimes a person will leave in the middle of a run. And a person will end up doing more shows of that show than the original writer of it. And there's always something... Like that, Bre- like Brendan did with you in America All Better, right? Or, he, or that did before. run for a while. It, it might have been 50-50. I actually yeah. went back in for him after I quit. Cause I, I was again. there that weekend. I was in for Mike. Okay. And so, I remember Shelly and everyone was just teeing off on oh, you. Oh, the they hated it. They, they were like, why are you coming back? I was like... And then I need to restore this part. <laughs> I mean, Brendan was probably much funnier in it than I. But anyway. No, but he brought, uh, that's the strength of touring at Second City is that you try on all these archive, these best of shows. Yes. And you have to learn how to do someone else's material. And you have this cheat sheet where you can actually watch the video and try to mimic them. And then when you're understudying you or you're on the road with this material, you try out what works. It's a great acting exercise. Oh, it is. The, this, the way the system is set up at Second City all the way through when they don't mess up with it, it's great because the way to write shows is, is unparalleled. Trying out material over and over again. There's no better way if you've got that time to do it. I don't know why more people don't. Huge luxury. And you're yeah. right. The whole having the information, the, the history of all those scripts and stuff and learning the parts is very important. Something that happens often with that understudy person is, you, is there's almost an expectation that they're going to get the part, you know, when they yeah. do the next cast. Yeah, yeah. And I got to say way more often than not 
that person does not get it. And I, and I never know why. I don't know if they've been in, if it's a disadvantage because they see you doing someone else's part for three months and they're like, that's not it. It, it can be that. That happened to Brendan a couple times. Exactly. And then he finally got ETC. But, it, but Brendan Jennings is a hilarious person and very different from me. You know, so when they end up putting him well, in. Well, you might be. You might be really similar. <laughs> we both have bad vision. Uh, I know that. But he's like wacky and likable, and I'm like sarcastic and mean. And I, I just don't see him being as mean as me. He did a great job, but interestingly, because, and, and I toured with Brendan, so I, sure. I, I could. And I love Brendan too. I could glow about Brendan forever. Um, but interestingly, he, he, we did some great scenes together when we were touring. So when he went in for you, and he could make stuff his own. And have his likability, uh, you know, elevate yeah. whatever material he grabbed. Um, and it, it it was pretty funny watching from the outside, being like, "Oh, Brendan's going in for Joe. How's this? This yeah. they are not the same." Because he is a dynamic dude. Like again, he is. If you've ever seen him, he plays a janitor on um, AP that Bio. Show, AP Bio. Yeah. Hilarious guy. What's What's funny? You get, like Brendan gets known for something like that. He's you know, Brendan's one of the fastest, funniest people of all time. Yes. I, Keeping up with him and Hans really forged me in steel. Super, yeah, super, super quick. Well, and Hans, again, did a lot of short-form stuff, and that makes you quick, working at Boom and places like that, comedy, sports. So unexpected. You yeah. cannot predict what his mind does. No. I, I just, I really lucked out. Everyone I toured with was was fantastic. Um, so there'll be no bashing of anyone. <laughs> if anyone was looking for that, you can abandon it now. Uh, so, yeah, that ETC run was, uh, it was good, and then we went into the second show. Right, so your second show now, uh, you've got, you've got, a I, new cast. And I learned a lot from sitting in that show for 11 months. Because a lot of our material from that show was legitimately created in the first two weeks of process. Of, yeah. So we ran some scenes for for over, for like 13 months. Yes. And again, often, you know, if something is overtly no longer relevant at Second City, they'll take it out. Yeah. If there's a reference. But sometimes the satire, you know, it's got a six-month shelf life and you've got an eight-month run. And, and so it's just going to lose a little bit of the impact that it has. Uh, and so you have to either find different ways or next time you go into a show process, you don't make the mistake of being so specific with something perhaps. Yeah. And so your second show at the ETC, you've got a, uh, a couple new cast members, as you mentioned, Jessica Joy, A.D. Bryant joined and Mike Lair. Yeah. Uh, so that show sky's the limit, weather permitting. So this is to me is more, Typical Second City title where it's like, here's your thing, here's the twist. And, uh, and very ETC, too. Very know. ETC. Yeah. I, I, I discovered in you know researching some of the shows of the late 80s, there was like a six-year run where half the ETC shows had like a or title. Or title. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just like the uh, Fractured Fairy Tales of Dudley Do-Right and all that. Uh, yeah, you know. yeah stuff i forget who who created all that jay something was a creator of all those things anyway so you've got experience now and you're writing a show a little more you know knowing what you're doing there uh how do you describe that and you were working with matt hubdy who had done a lot of shows at that point yeah and i'd never worked with him specifically so you know he's very organized very structured um make sure that very structured has a very specific idea of how to direct a second city show make, specifically a second city show make sure that the the cast is really balanced in the show so that for the run uh everyone is kind of satisfied and engaged which I, which i think is you know a, an important skill to to have in your pocket as a director as long as it doesn't come at the detriment of this show yeah it i mean 
that that was great because I Mary Mary Brendan and I had toured together and done the first show together, so we were really well acquainted. And then Jessica, AD, and Mike stepped in, and they didn't miss a beat. Um, uh, you know, Jessica is like a, a fantastic singer and musical improviser. AD is a you know a powerhouse. Mike is very unpredictable, like Hans, and a workhorse, uh, and and just like wrote his ass off for that show. And I. What I learned going from the first one to the second one was I was trying to fit a mold in the first one. I was trying to write to what the producers thought I was right. or, or yeah. whatever. And then I would get into the set and I'd have so much more fun and get laughs that really that I cared about through improv. And so going into the second one, I, I said, I'm not going to get a laugh in this show unless it comes from improv and and I, I really care about it. So that second show... Everything that, that was in the show, I was like, oh, I really love this laugh. I was in love with all those scenes. We had such a harmonious, productive process. Mm. Uh, it was an anomaly in my experience there. Not that others didn't have like elements of, of harmony to them. It's just that one was so positive, and it reflected in the show. And mm -hmm. The show was organic, yeah. the messages and themes behind it. And if you do, if you do more than two shows, you're going to have a, a great. Usually, you just do two shows. You'll have a great variety in the experiences and everything. But yeah. as each show builds on that, I mean, I think if you do four, you're guaranteed to have a good show and a bad show. Yeah. If you do four, like at that number, there's no <laughs> way you're not escaping that uh, that that equation somehow. And it's interesting you talk about improv because again, at this time. Most of the people going through there had been doing long-form improv. That was kind of their comedy baseline training. And they were the people who you mentioned who joined that cast had been in Chicago for years doing improv. And so you were all of the same mind in that way. Yeah. The turnover at this point wasn't what it was to become, I think, in the years, maybe even after you left. And I, I'm not, I don't have like solid numbers, but I do know observationally that after, you know, 2010, the turnover got a little quicker in some of the casts where you might do one, two shows, and then you're out. Mm -hmm. For yep. some people. Well, because uh, managers and agents started descending on Chicago in 2009. And this is, as I said, we're going to talk about that, yeah. which is about when you were doing this show, the second show. or Second show was 10 years ago, 2011. Oh, 2011. Okay. Yeah. yeah. First so, one was 2010. That ran up to 2011. It came out almost exactly 10 years ago in June. But all these people on the stages now were touring kind of in that 2009, 2010 era when the anniversary show happened and when this influx of managers yes. came in. Yeah, yeah. So you're kind of caught in, in, in this new everyone's being represented, but you also still are aware of the old ways where Dorf would do six shows yeah. or whatever. Yeah. So it's kind of transformation. Tran transitioning at that time, and I guess. we're watching it happen and wondering, you know, in Chicago, you don't know what you don't know. Yes. And especially then, you didn't know what you didn't know. Yes. Because we, everyone was so new to managers and agents. So, you know, there's, we got to kind of be the bridge, but I remember, you know, I talked to guys like St. Clair, who's like, I wish I could have gotten repped when I was 24. That would have been incredible. Right. Yes. And there's so many people in Chicago from that generation before that deserve to get repped really early. And, and, you know, and, but now we're through the looking glass and there are people that got repped at 23 and now they're unrepped at 28. Yeah. Because, you know. Getting someone at 23 is not the guarantee. It's a, and that, that's the yeah, weird no balance. Guarantee. That's the weird balance of commerce and art and at Second City in particular. Because, in my opinion, if you're going to write satire and social commentary, it helps to have a good worldview 
and maybe experience in that regard. Not that young people don't have things to say, but there's not one person who looks back 10 years and doesn't, no matter how old you are, and go, oh, I'm better off. I know more now than I did then. Yeah. Universally. So and, and and from the past year and the BIPOC letter that was written and all the conversations that have been going on in that building, let's hope that the sale of Second City doesn't mess up the lessons that they've learned from the right, last year. Right, that they don't have to— Let's yes. hope that they don't adopt those lessons. They don't read that and translate it into corporate speak. Well, who, kn- who knows? They fired how it's all the night yes. staff. There are some. They've made some bad decisions over the last few months after seemingly having Going opened their ears. Bit. And and well, when you when you have a fifty million dollar, people are going to want to make changes. It yeah. just depends on what those are. Now, I think, and the commerce part is that Lauren Michaels saw a show, maybe it was one of my shows, and said to Andrew, these people are too old to be on SNL. Cut to three years later, the average age of the people on stage is five, seven years younger. Nobody has kids. When I, I My first show I did, I had a child, and Claudia Wallace had two kids. And we did a scene about parents who were divorced and with their kids. And people without kids can do that scene. But it may lack a little of the depth and context. And, and so it's a back and forth. Honestly, what, they sh- you know, what would be interesting is if they had a cast of seven people with a breadth of age from like 24 to like 44. What would, what would that show look like where people could play parents of someone? It's all about balance and understanding that backstage is as important as on stage. Yes, and that's another thing that may have fallen by the wayside and I'm going to sound very old when I say cell phones should not be permitted backstage just because most of the, a lot of the, <laughs> I don't mean it I don't mean it exactly like that yeah, yeah. but I've said this before where several really good ideas came out of fucking around backstage with yeah. the cast while someone else was on stage doing a scene you know that time when you it's a unique kind of time when you've got really nothing to do it's perfect time for your cell phone honestly yeah but if you don't have that cell phone, you're left to your own devices a little bit. It's kind of like if you give a kid a ball as their only gift, that kid's going to become messy. If you give a kid a million presents, they'll never play soccer. Trust me, I know this from two daughters. <laughs> uh, again, you know, like, but, but it's just, I don't know if the analogy fits, but it doesn't matter. So, again, yes, that, that's kind of what I wanted to talk about. Your, your main stage show uh, and, and you only did one main stage show. Yeah. What was the reasoning behind it? Did you get pulled out for a job? Um, well, probably the main reason was shrink, to be honest. Yes. Which was a web series that you did that, that we turned into a pilot. pilot. So the web series we filmed at the end of 2011. So the end of 2011, you know, that show goes to the Jeffs. We win three Jeff awards, the second ETC show. And, uh, Ted Tremper had approached me and, uh, like maybe even a year before in 2010, and maybe he did a ship or something. And and he was yes. So uh, was yeah. this a Second City production? No, no, no. Okay, no. it was totally independent. Uh, you know, like filmed the whole thing for two hundred dollars with Ted calling in favors with other people that had right. Canon seven Ds. Right, like literally uh, an idea that came from um, uh, maybe someone that he knew that had gone through medical school. The point being. Uh, at the end of 2011, we filmed for a few months. Once a week, we would film a couple sessions of improvised therapy sessions in a garage. And it kept getting colder. We filmed the last one in December, and we're like in jackets, and we're freezing. Right. 
And then a few months later, he said, hey, I think if we film a couple other things, one with a supervising therapist, would end up, which ended up being Sue Gillen, um, and uh, their um, uh, kind of office manager, which ended up being Claudia Wallace, mm-hmm. and then you know this climactic moment at the end with Mick, uh, I think we can turn it into a pilot. What do you think about that? And I was like, yeah, let's do it. And we filmed it, and it edited together really well uh, and went out to New York Television Festival, got accepted there. So, but that was in October. Set, SNL comes by, I think Montreal was in June. This is Just for Laughs Festival. Yeah, so I got Montreal, uh, and then SNL came by a couple weeks later. Were you doing a one-man show? or uh, it, was, it was the second year of New Faces characters. So I was doing, Brennan was in that year too, and you're doing like, you know, five or seven minutes of, of characters. So sure. I think I did like four characters. Did you do the guy with the, the glasses? No, I didn't. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll talk about him in a second yeah. after. Uh, anyway, and then SNL comes, and then I was the one from the cast who got flown out. Um, and uh, and then I, 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 I called Allison the night before I auditioned, and I was like, hey, like I got to put in my two weeks. And it wasn't because I thought I was going to get SNL. It did. I was hanging on for dear life as long as I could. And once I got flown out, I was like, I can't do another one. Because Shr- just, it just didn't Shr- have the allure? Shrink was going to – we didn't know if we were going to make another episode on our own money. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't know if we were going to – like a producer had signed on and was going to help us develop it. The, but I was, I was also doing this commercial campaign for U.S. Cellular, and I was going out to L.A., and so I was starting to learn what I didn't know. Right. That is what lit the fire under me that I had to go. That, where I'm like, I'm, I'm like getting up, like, I'm, I'm getting, I'm having feelings about how this show is going, uh, mainly because I'm learning so much on these sets, and I learned so much from Shrink, and I know that that's what lies in the future. If I'm lucky, that's what right. I'll be working on. Right, and, and you and 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 why not just get going on that? You got to get going on that. And so, and I didn't want to be at Second City, and I didn't want to do a show and have one foot out the door. And I could feel one foot creeping out of the door just from being curious about other yeah. stuff. And and, so and that's right. So I called Alice, and she's like, "Really?" And I think some people were like, "Oh, he thinks he's got it in the bag." And I was like, "No." Well, the, I got to say, the timing was curious. The timing was curious, but I was like, "Whether I got it in the bag, it doesn't matter." And then we went out to New York Television Festival. We won two awards. We got Gene Domanian Productions to pick it up, and and the, and the, and, and stuff I, was and, going from that. And then it took five years to make it, but still, yeah. But that was that was really what I wanted to do. And main stage was. I, I definitely wanted to do main stage, and at the end of 2011, I think after the Jeff Awards, Allison and oh, uh, after the Jeff Awards, Chicago Shakespeare Company came to me and was like, "We want you to audition to play Bottom in Midsummer Night's Dream." Oh, right, they do, yeah. And so I, I, but I would have to quit my job in order to audition. So I went to Allison. I'm like, "Should I quit an audition? They want me to do this." Uh, and she's like, I can't tell you that. And I'm like, do you think I'm going to get moved to Main Stage? Right. And she wouldn't tell me. I held them off for a week, and then finally I was like, look, I really need to give them an answer. Should I quit or not? And she was like, in my opinion, you shouldn't quit. And I was like, okay, so I'll do a Main Stage show. This will be fun. And I knew all those people for years, and it was. It was a different kind of process. Yeah, it's just interesting, though, too, that, like, that's something that over the years, and I'm not a producer, uh, but – the way sometimes those decisions are made and those conversations happen, and, you know, somebody who's a producer is going to listen to this and be like, this fucking asshole doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And 
please, I invite whoever says that to come in and we'll discuss back and forth and we'll figure out who's dumb and who's not. But um, again, I, I think like that's something that always could have been done a little bit better. There's so many stories of just like, just say, if you know, just say. It makes it so much easier for everybody. And then there's always, and, and this is showbiz. I get it. There's nobody wants to commit to anything. Yeah. But it's, it's always been something that kind of has been a, like a little thorn in the second city side of the communication of how they do it. And that, and that harkens back to the understudies not getting to keep the role when they've been in for months. Let them know up front what's going on and don't ever, but again, I'm asking for, for humanity and stuff in a business that doesn't have much. So, so again, you have a lot of things that are going on that are going to pull you away. And I want, it is interesting when you say, because this ties back into the cast getting younger and you don't know what you don't know. When you're in Chicago, it is insular. It's that community. You go out to LA a little bit and you do see 24 year olds have managers and this and that and everything. Why? I don't know why, but maybe cause they're 24 and they're in LA. I mean, I think about what I'm doing now and I'm like, geez, it would be cool to get some of these opportunities and take a swing in like the 25 year old version of my body and brain. Yes. It's never going to happen. But we were in Chicago. Back. We didn't move to LA. Right. But I'm, I, but you wouldn't be the performer you are now if you moved to LA at 22. Right. Exactly. So yeah. it, it is, it's a, and that is kind of the Chicago conundrum. You got great because you stayed in Chicago, but some of the opportunities that lesser talents got simply for being there. And then they, they already have the reputation in the resume. In hindsight, I maxed out. I, if I have, if I had one, not even regret, but if I could go back and tell my younger self something, it's like, remember to dream outside Chicago. Have your Chicago dreams. But, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, um, I didn't envision a gigantic career for myself. I fell in love with Chicago and the community, and I wanted to, I wanted to be on the best Herald team. And then once I got to know what Second City was, I wanted, I wanted to do a great show on a stage. And I wanted to be in the, the best touring company. Yeah. Um, not out of pride, just because it's like, well, those are the goals, right? And I accomplished all those things. And then I hit a point where I was doing things that hadn't been done in Chicago. And I'm not tooting my own horn, but like making an indie pilot that... that People now are doing that, but then weren't. Then weren't. And then, you know, I get a, I get a Jeff Award. I, I won two Dell Awards, you know. I, I shot the moon at the 15-year-old version of myself looking at yeah, what right. it was. I, I shot the moon and went past it based on that kid's ideas of Chicago and when I got out of it, maybe I should have, maybe I should have stuck around, done another show and gotten another tight five minutes and gone at SNL again, you know? But that's, but again, may, may, but who knows? But, but you didn't want SNL like you wanted the main stage, I'm guessing. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this. After we auditioned for SNL, we were, a, a bunch of the Chicago people went out to dinner. I, f I forget who was all there. It was probably, you know, 80, maybe Robinson. Um, I don't even that years. Yeah, of, the, the, I, I forget. But we're sitting around, and everyone's like, "So if you know they offer it to you, do you like like what do you want? Like what's your what's your dream?" Everyone's talking about their dreams, and it's going around. And everyone's like, "I want SNL. I want SNL." And Shrink was such a transformative experience. Literally, the thing that taught me I could do TV. And I said, "Why? Wow, honestly, I'd really love to do a season of Shrink. I had so much fun making that one episode. Imagine making ten, yeah, or twelve, right. or twenty. Uh, and that's and everyone looked at me cross-eyed like, are you insane? Right. And it wasn't that I. You'd also put your two weeks in of twenty four yeah. hours earlier. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> you, you you had a couple things going for you. It might have been that night. Yeah. It might have been an hour earlier. By the way, I got time. No, no, no. no. Okay, good. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I got at least a half hour. 
but uh, that that to me, I was slowly starting to realize what I wanted, what these new dreams were. I think in Chicago, a lot of SNL is the golden ticket out of town, and it's kind of the only thing that you know. Yeah. Now, now people know more things, but definitely then it was the only thing that you knew, and it was the way out of town. Yep. It was the way to have a career, right. and that's all that we'd seen for decades. Right. The yep. history in in all the buildings told you that. Yep. So to to imagine other things and to pursue other things meant you were taking a leap of faith. You were, you know. You were taking a leap from the lion's head, or sure, yeah, no, you were, you were just, tr- you were, you were, you were trusting in yourself and having faith in yourself as opposed to like the system that was in place. I there. literally was just following the passion. The closer I got to SNL, yeah. the more I learned about it. The more I was like, boy, uh, this doesn't seem like the perfect playground for me. I. Yeah, I don't do well on little sleep. <laughs> I don't do well with politics. I don't a, like cocaine. I'm a, I, I've never done cocaine. <laughs> I'm a horrible ass kisser. Yeah, I don't play politics well. Yeah. And 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 it's not that you have to do all those things, but there are people who are like, hey man, the best way to succeed there is to do all those things. That's true. And and, and you can actually get just as far with those things in some cases as you can by just being brilliant. But I will say I'm not an expert on that. That's just things that I've heard secondhand. Yeah. Well, no, firsthand from people on it. But I've also heard from people on it um, that didn't do that, that had success. Of course. It's, you know, th- when you have a staff of 50 writers, you're going to have 10 who have a great time, 10 who have a horrible time, and 30 who have something in between. You should yeah. probably cut 30 of them out of there and just do it with 20 writers, but whatever. That's that's 30 <laughs> jobs I'm just cutting right there. I think 50% of people having a terrible time might not be a great work no, environment. No, <laughs> no, it probably not, but it might be less people if there weren't 50 writers who are having a terrible time. It, it would have been... It would have been cool to see that up close. And of course, and 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 you're right. I think the way you 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 phrase that is perfect. Where up until around that time, because also around that time, Brian Gallivan was doing some videos on the Second City Network oh, that yeah. did really well. Yeah, another thing that they abandoned after it got successful. Uh, but quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> but um, when you moved to Chicago, like I wanted to be on the main stage. SNL was like a little. You know, like, like, yeah, but that seemed like a far away thing. But main stage was something that was attainable and everything. But you're right. Dream beyond that. Because now there are all these different ways to make your own thing. But it was pretty much, that's maybe why people did so many shows at Second City. Because you either get hired by SNL or you do enough shows that you then want to quit. Yeah. Second City. And maybe it was, you know, it is a combo of them going younger, but also people getting picked off quicker meaning they had to get some new people in. And that main stage show was a great time. We had we had great scenes in it. Um, it was more like a traditional review, mm-hmm. which uh, we had a title that float, we floated for it. Um, so that one ended up being called... It, Who Do We Think We Are? Who Do We Think We Are, which felt, I think... I mean, I hope the rest of the cast remembers that as kind of a compromise title where once we got it, we were like, okay, sure. It doesn't. Yeah. It didn't help define what the show was, and we had about three, four weeks left in the process. Mm-hmm. And sometimes a title will come around, and it'll help you define the show, and you'll find the structure, the skeleton of the show. Yep. And that just makes you feel good every night to hang your hat on, like... Doors Open on the right had, like, a runner with, like, uh, you know, the, the L train, and they yeah. could do the stuff with that, and it referenced that. We had we had a title that we floated called "When Doves Cry Wolf," which I know I know like everyone can laugh about Second City titles, but I was like, man, that's a 
if we write that check, we got to try to cash that. Yeah, right. Like we we got to we got to live up to that. You don't want the title to be better than the show. And then and then it didn't and then it didn't happen for I don't even remember what reason. And we kind of settled into this kind of you know old school. And it was the hundredth review, so it, it made sense to do that. Um, it's funny, like like that title, when doves cry wolf. Now that could apply. 10 different times in American history, you know, in the last 50 years. But if it's not specific, right. You know, they, they might be able to use that title in five years. Go for it. Because it's kind of like, if you can pay it off. Right. And if it applies. Now we didn't really have a scene that could pay it off. And my only regret from that show is that we, well, I didn't, I didn't have uh, like improv for myself and that's always tough. And and I, I had learned that lesson in the two previous shows that I got in that show. And then the show's about to open. I'm like, Oh, I don't have improv for myself. Because that's always what kind of loosens you up. You know? and, and that's what makes every show different after, yes. you know, seven months. Yeah, exactly. And even then, at a certain point, you know, if you've done the same improv bit for seven months, it's hard sometimes to keep it fresh because you're going to meet the same freaking accountant yeah. eight times. But I, I've, I was really proud of the stuff that um, I wrote for that show and that we all wrote together. There was one scene, a big group scene that was a living wake for someone who hadn't died yet. And... Uh, and like all hell broke loose and like everyone's finding out each other's secrets and we couldn't get it under 12 minutes and hubby cut it. And I, I think most of us were like, this is the best scene we got and it got cut. And, and, and that's a little bit of the formula thing, I believe. Yeah. Well, well, no, no. I mean, to his credit, it was just, it just came at the wrong time in the process. We had a mm. couple other longer scenes and it was like, it's either going to be this one or this one. And you know, this one isn't hitting the way that we want it every night. It's only hitting yeah. two thirds of the time and, and it got bumped and, but, you know, it's one of those, like, every process you do, there's always a sour taste in your mouth. Where you're like, I wish we could have gotten that, that to there, work. There's almost always one scene that you wish had gotten in. And, and again, we'll get wrapping in a second, but in the, in the previous days, that scene that you wrote, your cast might be five of the next six for two more shows. So that scene might get pitched again with only one person different, like Grandma's Records, which is a famous Second City scene. Oh, Apparently yeah. that had been pitched two, three shows before. Wow. And in in various versions, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, that rarely happens anymore because there's so much turnover. And it's like, well, if two people help me write this and they're gone, then it gets weird. But if it's like, well, this was a group scene and, and the three people who brought it in are still here and the one part is that you can still kind of justify that. It's like it's like Led Zeppelin's last album where they had all just like like the extra song from each other album that they didn't put on. They just put together. It's still a great album. Yeah. I, I know you wanted to ask about that that one scene. Yes, the glasses. Yes. Well, yeah. So we're going to get into now. We've uh, any any more just general observations on your time at the Second City in those shows before I get on to kind of our wrap up questions. Um, I mean, the general observation. It really, it's you hear it when you're on the stage as an alums come back and they're like, "This is the best job you'll ever have," uh, because it's a mix of amateur and it's a mix of semi pro and pro. And I agree with that. Now I agree with that in hindsight because you really, you know, you're you're walking a you're walking a tightrope. You're walking a high wire every night, and you don't get to do that outside that. Even the other comedic institutions around the country yeah. don't have that style. And I just, I I feel I feel incredibly lucky to have to have worked there. I subscribed to that Rachel Dratch quote my whole time there, which was every night there's at least one person in the crowd who is going to see this show for the first time, and it's the only Second City show they're ever going to see. I want to give them the best 
fucking show that they've yeah. ever seen. It's I like, want to lay it all on the line. So I, I didn't like Jordan. Yeah. Like Jordan. I didn't fuck around too much, but I toured with Hans and Brendan. So, you know, if, if you got broken in a scene, <laughs> if it happened 5% of the time, it's like, well, it's cause this, this, this broke me. There, are, Yeah. And there I, are times where I think that some people were like, you didn't fuck around enough. And I'm like, Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Nobody said that to me, uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we're polar opposites in that, some ways. that. But also I've broken and I've been broke. I've broken people. And, bro- and there are times I'm thinking of one in particular with Nooch where he broke everybody in the audience and on stage. And it, it like, it doesn't happen often, but there are times where even the people on stage are audience members and you're laughing with the audience at whatever happened. I got it. I got it. My favorite story of that from, from the stage. This, sure. is my, oh, this is my favorite. So we were in process. We needed that one last scene, right? And um, we didn't really have like a defining scene yet. I think we probably got one after this, but we got about three weeks left. And I'm like, I'm going to write a group scene. Because I'd, I'd written, I got like like eight or nine things that I wrote into that show. Um, it was really felt like I was clicking as a writer. So I went home and I'm like, oh, I got this. The third show is kind of maybe where you're right in the wheelhouse. Yeah, you hit a stride. You understand what the show needs. I was like, this is what the show needs. I'm going to go home and write this. I wrote this mapping scene about um, Palpatine and Vader. And Palpatine keeps getting Vader to, like, kill these Jedis. But um, it's mapped on, like, what... uh, like right-wing politicians hate and how they yeah. try to get like... And just, just for clarity, uh, a mapping scene is you take you take one thing and you kind of lay it over another situation and now we have Darth Vader and Palpatine instead of Mitch McConnell and, and Paul Ryan or something. Yeah, so the Jedis were all like, you know, it was like a, a single mother who was like collecting a check from the Empire, you know, right. uh, because she had to take care of her kids and like, you know, uh, um, uh, a, a Hispanic janitor and things like that. So, so Vader comes in, and Steve Waltine had this big Darth Vader helmet where you could talk, and it distorted your voice to sound like Vader. Did you do this on your last night, uh, or no. him on his last night? Uh, uh, no, but I he probably had one because he owned the helmet, and I was like, Steve, could I use it for the scene? And he's like, Yeah, and he had a great Palpatine impression, so he played Palpatine. So we come in, and there's this like stormtrooper that I keep tossing around with the Force, and there's these Jedi's that were like choking, and it's really fun. But then Palpatine would be like, "Yes, choke that single mother. She's stealing from the like," and and I, and then Vader would be like, "Like, wait, what? No, I I want to I want to kill them because they're a Jedi, not because she's a single mother." Like this I, made it in the show, didn't it? No, it didn't. So we do it, and I probably told you this before. That's why you're you're remembering yeah. parts of it. So we we go out, and I'm I'm in my Vader outfit, like, and the crowd like goes wild. I walk out to the Pal- the the Vader death march, you know, and. Julie's playing it on her on her piano, and the crowd's going nuts. And then I start talking, and I'm and I can only through, see through these tiny slits, and so like the crowd is dying and the cast is dying. But I'm have this helmet on and I can't really hear what's going on. But everyone's breaking, and I'm like, this is in my head. It's a five minute scene. And the whole time I'm like, I did it. I shot the moon. I got the one scene that we need in the show. And I walk off stage after we do it, and I'm like all triumphant. I take the thing off. My hair's all messed up, and Hubdy walks back, and he's like. Tim, and I'm like, what do you think, Matt? You know, I'm all cocky. And he goes, we couldn't understand a word you said. <laughs> For five minutes, I'm on stage going, and it and became apparent to the audience you didn't know what the hell was happening, I'm sure. And I had no clue. And so the cast is laughing at me because they know they memorized the scene, so they're hitting all their beats. But in me, I'll be like, well. It's like a gibberish scene, but you didn't know it was gibberish. gibberish. (laughs) That is great. You know what? 
I, you must have told me that because as you're telling me, that, it's all filling into my head like I had seen that scene. Yeah. I'm, I, it's a shame it didn't make it into the show, I want to <laughs> say. All right. Uh, this has been great. I've got a couple other wrap-up questions that we're going to just kind of ask for some uh, yeah, of the I know, general stuff. I know stuff. you want to talk about that positive guy. Oh, shit. I keep forgetting about positive guy. All right. I can talk about that quickly. Just quickly, yes, because it's a character. And I like, you know, again... I, I've tried to see as many Second City shows as I could. I saw your show, uh, that main stage one, and there was a character, he's flashing up on the screen right now that you did, which is just really a pair of fake glasses that are like, you know, the opened eyes yeah. glasses, and your thumbs are up in that picture. And that's really all I remember from the character, except that I was crying laughing at it. <laughs> Tell me who that guy's name is and what what about that character. So that, that was a guy named Positive Guy. Yes, okay. I, I think I was frustrated about something in my life at the time, and I was trying to be positive. I was just telling myself be positive. And Matt gave us this assignment that was literally just bringing a two-minute scene. That's it. I don't care what it is. No other suggestions. It's two minutes. And uh, we were writing that show after Christmas. And for Christmas, my sister had gotten, like, us those glasses as a family. And so we were just wearing them, and and my dad kept wearing them. He just looked ridiculous. And uh, and we were just crying, laughing on Christmas with that. And then I kept them, and I didn't really think about them. And came home after the show, tried to write a scene, didn't work. Wake up late. I'm like, damn, I have to be at Second City in half an hour. I take a shower, I shave. Um, and I'm like, I got nothing, man. I, I got, I'm tapped out. And I put the glasses on, and I'm like, all right, don't beat yourself up. And I'm looking in the mirror, and I'm brushing my teeth, and I just, like, laugh a little bit. And I go... I'm a positive guy. And that, and and that was it. And I'm like, yeah, okay. Was it a song? It was a song. It's but a song. It, I'm okay. not a singer. So no, I, but so it's that just, voice. Yeah, I'd come out and I'd be like, I'm a positive guy. And I don't remember any of it. And then like things of his life would come out and shit all over him. Yes. And then he'd be like, he'd be like, weather in the storm. And he'd be like, it's okay. And he's got these dumb glasses on. And I'd be like, it's okay. Like, I'm a positive yes. guy. And then someone would come out. And like Julie did great music on it, and everyone did play these silly characters, and it ended in a rant about NASCAR, which kind of made no sense, but worked. Yeah, and and it was it also that was the the third show stride where I'm like, man, I never would have thought of this, and it was just a silly fun thing to play. Where and you you had confidence to trust anything essentially to the point. I mean, that's the ultimate improv confidence right there. Is I got nothing. Here's a pair of fun, funny glasses. I'm going to put something in the show today. Yeah, it shouldn't have worked. But and, but it but it did cuz I I was having so much fun with it. And, and and that's a testament to your director Matt Hubdy as well who I worked with him a couple times in shows and and you know, he has very straight-laced persona but he does he appreciates other people what they think is funny whether or not he does. Yeah, yeah. And he will let you do that and let the audience be the guide. He's very good at that, and that's again part of the system that's so good. And he did that with that show too. It was yeah. it was a very balanced show. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah. Sorry. All right. So now my just last couple questions, and it might just even be a one word answer. But do you think Second City is a sketch theater or an improv theater? Uh, I think it's a, I think it's a sketch theater that uses improv as a tool. And, and that's that's what yeah, and that's what they. I think that's, that's how they, they advertise but, but it, themselves. It really is, and that's why their reviews have a mixture of everything, and why I think comedically they're so you know important and dynamic, whether you like the style or not. And also their training center, which I think has to be you know in some way connected to the thing, teaches that style of long form 
improvisation well, that then goes into the shows. Improv for everything. Yeah. Actors, butchers, accountants. Yeah. Uh, and this is, and you've touched on a few now, but I'm going to ask you to name like your improv kind of like, if you have an improv hero, uh, Ed Furman to me is a guy who I just like when I, I I can't not laugh at anything Ed says. So if there's somebody who, and it doesn't have to be in your second city experience, but who you just are like, you know, and you've made some mention, it could be one of the people you mentioned, kind of a favorite improv person from there. Um, I mean, you know, without going too long into detail, because I could qualify every single person sure. that I would talk about. And, you know, let's let's exclude present company. Absolutely. Otherwise, as always, we'll just be talking about each other. And I always assume that whoever I have here has me, you know, they're 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 listing their second person. <laughs> yeah. um, it, it'd be hard to keep it to one person. I, I but I'd quickly do a list. And, and trust me, I could expound on sure. all these people. But I'd I'd say TJ, Dave, Hans. Rush Howell, um, Emily Wilson, Sue Gillen, Claudia Wallace. These are people that meant a ton to me. They are, they are on, you know, if I have to come back and, um, and, and look at my time and and the people that inspired me the most and kept me going in, in tough moments or kept me laughing when I didn't think I could laugh. Those are the people. Those are, and, and some about all those people you mentioned, they're all very quick witted. Yeah, like as you mentioned, Rush quick. You said already said Hans is very quick. Sue and Emily both. I've seen them both as improvisers, very cutting and quick. Those are the people from beginning to end yeah. uh, of my time in Chicago. Where I'm like, the, the, they ended up meaning the most to me. And and I'm leaving out all the cast oh, because sure. the casts were really special. You know, Mary Sohn and Brendan and I did so much together. Those people, are, of course, they're family, of course, they're siblings, of course. That's why, and that's why you can't mention them as your favorite person. My my <laughs> daughter always tells me relatives can't be friends. <laughs> <laughs> my younger one, the older one, I don't even know. Well, what then she they're thinks, not but. like siblings because they're they're two of the best people I've ever met. Oh, there you go. Uh, well, Tim, thank you very much. Thank again, thank you for the time for coming in, and uh, and I've, I've loved hearing what you think about this. You're very th- obviously, like we said before, you're a nerd like me, and I like people who really kind of break down and analyze all this stuff. I sure, I sure hope the listeners do it as well. Uh, but if they don't, that's fine because I know they will enjoy the other stuff you do, which is, is Shrink coming out? Uh, it's currently orphaned, so I don't know where. So, all right, producers, yeah. we have a project ready to pretty much go. You got 10, you could pull 10 episodes out of your ass if you had to. We had a second season. Ready to go. You hear that, folks? So, although Shrink is not, out at the time of recording <laughs> if we can get this to some big time people it may be out at the time of the release of oh, this oh, well, let's hope you. so thank and you. otherwise you're doing so much uh, great work uh, everywhere else we look forward to seeing it thanks joe thanks All for right. having me no problem